I've been looking forward to this. This is a wonderful text of Scripture. Um, I've entitled it The Passage of Time. I know what you're going to think, right? Some of you that are in politics or you've heard that phrase recently, The Passage of Time, you've heard it um, by our Vice President. That is not what we're going to be talking about today, but it is, all right? So I just wanted to hit it because I know some of you are going like, really? And I'm going like, just hang with me. You'll see what I'm talking about. All right, Daniel chapter 5, beginning with me in verse 1. I'll read it. You read silently as we go through the entire chapter. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, of the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately. The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And the king's color changed. And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because in the excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king nicknamed Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and the enchanters have been brought in before me to read this interpretation and make it known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. 
Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed And whom he would, he kept alive. And whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. And when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne. And his glory was taken from him. And he was driven from among the children of mankind. And his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was like that of of the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. The vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you, your lords, your wives, and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath And those are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. It's just God's holy word. Let us be careful on how we hear it this morning. Time always has a way of telling the story, doesn't it? In ancient Greece, history was not seen as a separate discipline or a field of study, but was closely tied to storytelling and the transmission of knowledge. It evolved not only according to the record of events that happened, but the desire was to also give interpretations or moral lessons, and it would explain the causes and consequences of these historical events. And while there is no direct connection with the, with the, with the pronoun his in the word history, I've always thought of the history as being his story, Because looking backwards in time always tells God's story of His sovereignty and providence in humanity. And I think it's a fascinating topic. And today in our text we see how God's story told through Daniel 
tells us of the passage of time and God's sovereign hand at work in this story of redemption that began before time and will continue to go on till eternity. All of life, both now in time and in eternity, is about God and His rightful glory. And our story today is the middle story between God working His sovereign authority over humanity in the lives of three powerful, or at least seemingly powerful, kings. The first one was Nebuchadnezzar. Chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. And now in chapter 5, it's Belshazzar. And then chapter 6, and two weeks from, to now, from, from now, will be King Darius. And it's an amazing trilogy of belief and unbelief. Judgment and blessing. Wisdom and foolishness. And God addresses these kings in various ways to speak a word that is vital for us to hear even today. It's why we have copies of what took place back then. And God addresses this because some of these men believe, but some of them remained in their unbelief. And the message, though, is a powerful message of both warning and assurance. You see, trusting and depending on God are not a secondary matter but are an issue of life and death for all of us, even today. And so it's a lesson for us to learn. And here's what I think this chapter is telling us. All of life must be lived in daily trust in God and obedience to His Word. Do you understand that? Every aspect of life must be lived in a daily trust into God and obedience to His Word. It's how life is. You see, our faith in God is more accurately seen over time. And it declares the real story of our lives. And so we open this text with a passage of time. Last week we ended in Daniel chapter 4, verse 37, where Nebuchadnezzar stood and says, Now I praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Boy, what a way to end a chapter, right? And we flip the page over and we get into chapter 5 and we see a huge change take place. In fact, many changes have taken place. Nearly 25 years have passed since the events of chapter 4. And over 70 years have passed since the events of chapter 1. Daniel is not a teenager anymore. He's in his 80s. Between Nebuchadnezzar and chapter 5, there were four other kings, history tells us. There's a fellow that came right after, a fellow by the name of Evil Merodach in 561 B.C. This was Nebuchadnezzar's son. He followed. He, however, was assassinated by his brother-in-law, Nereglisar, who had a tenure of about four years and was succeeded by his son, Labashe Marduk. And then I love what one commentator wrote about this fellow by the name of Labashe Marduk. He said, quote, This poor creature was liquidated within a month, and one of the conspirators, Nabonidus, became king. 
in 555 B.C., Nabonidus. And it seems that Nabonidus had a passion, a passion. He was a, he was a very passion to follow the god of sin. It's the god of the moon named Sin. And so he grabs on what appears to be, then he gives a co-regency to Belshazzar here. And he decides that he is, himself is going to relocate for the next 10 years in a place called Tema Tema. It's an oasis of the northern Arabian desert, 500 miles from Babylon. So his son, Belshazzar, our fellow for today, functioned then as the de facto king in Babylon for these many years. And learn something. All that Nebuchadnezzar had put in place by now has been forgotten. It's been disregarded. And life for this de facto king over time was one of an arrogant rebellion. God's patience and his kindness with the grandfather Nebuchadnezzar was now lost. It was gone. And Daniel was eyewitness to all of this. Silently, behind the scenes, Daniel is seen, watching all of this unfold. And so when we get to chapter 5, there's an abruptness to this chapter. There's no real introduction. The first words are King Belshazzar. And so he'd say, like, where did this come from? I mean, it was just this sudden jerk, as it were. And in this narrative, it's abrupt. Without any commentary, or without any intro, Daniel relates to us the story that time has revealed. And it's a tragedy. And this is our word for today. So let's learn from this. Notice, first of all, see Belshazzar's insolence. We see this in verses 1 through 4. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. You know, the proud heart is dangerous. And it's t- terrible, troublesome reality in our lives. Because it doesn't stay quiet. It speaks. It voices itself in life. It shows itself. And over the passage of time, it reveals itself and displays. And the display that you see is a dreadful display. And here we see this co-regent king filled with his own self-glory. And behind the scenes, he's a man of complete godlessness. And Daniel reveals it to us. And notice what it looks like. Notice, first of all, that this man, Belshazzar, is addicted to self-glory. Do you see this in verse 1? Belshazzar lives his life as if God has no say in his world. It's only hinted of this at first but it, and explained later, but we find him in the middle of a great party. And that party is all about him. And in his false sense of security in the walls of his own kingdom, he gathers his lords together and notice, quote, he drank wine in the presence of the thousand. The wording here in the Hebrew conveys a sense of the theatrical. Self-glory does this. It's all drama. There's a lot of drama in life. All eyes are on him and he loves it. And it suggests a certain play-acting bravado that is sloshed with his own glory. 
And he drinks his world away trying to desperately show that he's the one in charge, that he is the king. And in his drunken mind, so no one was going to keep him accountable, and tonight was a night to live life to its fullest. And it's the scene that we've all seen in someone's own insecurity in and of themselves. And he apparently has learned nothing about God from his grandfather. There's no history of understanding of who God is in this life that he's living right now. So he's very much addicted to self-glory. Secondly, his pride turns to insolence. Look at verses 2 and 3. We see this. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold, of silver, Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought. And notice how that's, that wording comes up twice here to show you, to demonstrate to you that, that Daniel took this thing very seriously, what he was doing here. We see a heart filled with blasphemy. In his self-glory, he remembers the golden sacred vessels that his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar brought into the treasury of the godless temples of Babylon and brings them into the party for an added high, as it were, to his already debauched party. It was a move to flaunt, to parade, to boast of his own glory that the God of the Hebrews had no say in Babylon. So the vessels of God were used to remind these Jews that their God was no longer powerful. It was blasphemous. And Belshazzar wanted to put it in their faces once again that they were a defeated foe. He showed contempt for God's stuff. And then because of that, he showed contempt for God himself. It always goes hand in hand, folks. When you disregard God, you show contempt for God. And it usually is empowering, humanly speaking, to grab onto those things and make them toys or vessels of blasphemy. His heart was a factory of rebellion against God. His insolence had no respect, no reverence, and no awe of God. And we see thirdly, his insolence reveals a blindness of the soul. Look at verse 4. You can't get any clearer than this. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron and wood and stone. When you dismiss the one true God, when you dismiss the, the, the most high God, you're left with what is not real. His soul is blind to what is real. He seeks to offer worship to the created rather than to the creator. He worships things that aren't real gods. I mean, this is a blindness that we're too susceptible of, even in our world today, in our church today. It's the blindness to the fear of God. There at one time was in our country a basic reality within people who attended church of the verse in Hebrews 9.27 that says this, It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. There was a time when that scripture could be read in a church and people would be pierced to the heart to realize this. I'm afraid today hardly anyone ever thinks about that verse. But it's in the Bible, and it's true. You see, the Babylonians were pluralistic in their godless idolatry. 
And so the God of Israel was added to their whole hosts of other idols. But the one true God is not one of the few. He's the one and the only God. And Belshazzar's heart was blind to his own godless living and godless thinking. Remember, God had gotten after Nebuchadnezzar. And Belshazzar shows no signs of learning from that. So see Belshazzar's insolence. But notice, secondly, notice Belshazzar's terror. And we see this in verses 5 through 16. The partying king experiences yet another change. The insolent king now becomes the crumbling king. And God reveals himself to this king. And God rips the cover off, as it were. And we think that we are mighty and powerful, that we give into our own lust and desires for self-glory, and we pretend that we can actually live our lives without God. And it's all a lie. Every bit of it is a lie. So notice what happens here. Notice the handwriting on the wall. You see this in verses 5 through 9? Immediately. Do you see that? This, I love Daniel in his, in his writing this. He just goes like, and just all of a sudden, this hand appears. And we've all heard this phrase, but many in our world do not know that it's actually lifted from this story. When you see the handwriting on the wall, you'll know it's lifted right from here. And Daniel 5 describes the hand of God in the writing on the wall. Like this hand was very real, and you would have seen it. But it also describes the hand of God in the history of Babylon and of Israel, and really this same hand of God in your life and in my life today. It's the same, same hand. And to Belteshazzar, the hand of God was a, was a bizarre and frightening thing. And notice his terror. The finger of God that wrote the Ten Commandments to humanity is now writing again on the wall of this king. And it doesn't happen very often, but if God himself is writing something, that it behooves us to pay attention to it. And how quickly things changed for this king. His color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. A moment ago, he was reveling in himself. And now the thoughts were troubling him. In fact, the phrase, the knees begin to knock, is more literally, the joints of his loins were loosed. And what this really means is he lost control of his body functions. That's what it means. He's terrified. So what does he do? What Nebuchadnezzar always tried to do? Turn to your own religion. That's what he does. When we're struck with fear, what do we automatically do? Well, we grab some resemblance of God, but we can't go to the one true God. We can't bow down to that because that will mean that we're no longer the one true ruler. So he goes to his religion. And Belshazzar calls his, what one, one commentator write, calls the Ghostbusters again. The same people that we've seen all the way through. And this one guy says, it's really silly people full of silly ideas who presume to solve the problems of the rich and famous. Only this time there's no Daniel. So once again, they have no answers. Shockers, right? 
Notice that people who have great education yet push aside God never really have answers. And this is the first place that he goes. Of course. That's the first place he goes. This is his religion. This is his faith. It's where he goes to not have to deal with the one true God and yet put on this religious front. He wants to look good. And notice he promises them the world. You notice that? He promises them everything. You say, well, almost everything. Purple robe. That's majesty, rulership, the the chain of authority around him. And then he's third in the country. Well, why not second in the country? Because he's second. Nabodinus, he's the first. So he knows his place here. But no one can help him. Understanding something, unless you submit to God's plan, no one can help you. Do you understand that? When you try to manipulate life on your own and you try to give yourself to the people of the world around you who seem to be wise and seem to be religious, my friend, they cannot help you. And he couldn't help himself. And I kind of chuckled. These elite counselors, they're, all, they're really not that elite, are they? I mean, how often do we helplessly grab counsel from people that are disconnected with God and His truth? And we sit there and listen to them and we'll nod our head. You see this all the time in the news. People, people are just barking off stuff and, and they don't have the gospel. It, it's hopeless. And everyone goes like, oh, yeah, yeah. I want to go, no, stop it. Then I love this. But the queen remembers. Of course she does. We see this in verses 10 through 12. She remembers that there is actually someone connected to the one true God and he's still in your kingdom, I think, Somewhere around here. Now she's likely not the queen. She's actually, actually the queen mother. Belshazzar's grandmother, the wife of Nabodinus. Belshazzar's wives and concubines, are you'll notice they're already in the room. So it's not, it's not Belshazzar's wife or his, his mom. It's, or it's probably his mom. Only the queen mother could come in in an invited way like this. She storms in. She's not there. She kind of storms in. And she reminds them all of this Daniel, this crazy guy Daniel. But notice how Daniel's remembered. Look at verse 12. Daniel is remembered in a wonderful way, an excellent spirit, full of knowledge, understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems that were found in this Daniel. At 80 plus years, his reputation is still the same. 80 years, Daniel is still Daniel. And as he aged, his life exhibited even more clearly true godliness. He had an excellent spirit. Now, we, can, we can't have all the gifts that someone else has, but we can't leap tall buildings in a single bound, but we all can have the attitude or a spirit that is excellent. This speaks to consistency. It speaks to honesty with the truth. It speaks to a service with integrity. It speaks with serving with compassion, with great care. It speaks of serving with courage and conviction rather than just putting the finger up, seeing which way the wind is blowing. It speaks to consistency. And Belshazzar is desperate to hear this. And so he says, well, take your best shot, Mr. Daniel. I'll greatly reward you. 
You see, most people who marginalize God think that everyone else does the same. So, you've, there's something special about you, go for it, man. What do, you, what do you have to say? But the difference is, Daniel does worship the Most High God. That is the difference in his life. My friend, when you worship the Most High God quietly in your room, in your house, for years, that becomes the testimony of the goodness of Christ and the goodness of grace. But Daniel worships the Most High, and Belshazzar considers him irrelevant, but the queen doesn't. She pulls him in. And so Daniel, in verses 13 through 16, steps up once again. You see this? Now Belshazzar has this very thin view of the man of God. Look at verse 13. He doesn't really think that Daniel is the guy because the way he answers him. He says, you're that Daniel, one of the exiles. You're one of the peons. You're you're one of the scrubs. In fact, I don't even use you. I didn't even pull you into my, my rulership. Four, four kings have gone by, and oh, yeah, there's this Daniel. Daniel's done nothing for 25 years. So, well, come on, Mr. Daniel, let's go with it. But take note that the people who seek self-glory often have very small views of God's chosen prophets. God sent Daniel, and even though he's forgotten and retired, Daniel's still functioning well, and God uses him. But see Belshazzar's pride, and you see this in verses 17 through 23. He's, look at verse 17. You see this. This is, a, this, is a, this is a wonderful thing. Then Daniel answered. He was like he was ready to go. He was ready to go. This must have been heartbreaking for him, though, because he remembered the days of Nebuchadnezzar, and I love this about him. He's not insecure. He's not even shy. He steps right up to the plate. And he's also very satisfied with how God has been gracious to him. So he doesn't need the gifts from the king. He's not doing this for the king. This is a kingdom mindset that is absolutely stunning. God is still God. And I don't care what you do and what you say. I'm trusting God. And the kingdom mindset only grows sweeter with age. And it is filled now with this long tenured trust in God by this man. So he's not fearful. But notice what he does. Daniel sets the context. He puts this in place. In verses 17 through 21, he puts in place the context of where God has dealt with the kings before. And the king has a very selective memory. Verse 16, he knew some of the exploits of Daniel, but when Daniel enters the room, Daniel makes sure that everyone remembers what God has done, not what Daniel has done. Do you notice that? Look, and you'll see this. He says, I've heard, he said, Daniel answered and said, verse 17, let your gifts be to yourself, but O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. God did this. My friend, this ought to be how we speak of God. Look what God has done. Look what God has done. Look what God has done. And this is where Daniel is. I love this about him. Daniel sets the context. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with himself and God took him down until he repented. 
and how important repentance is for God. And this happens until Nebuchadnezzar knew that the Most High ruled. Please understand something. When you give yourself to your own way, God is going to come and demand repentance until you see that God is God. And repentance is your first option to go to. Belshazzar's pride, though, has wiped all of that from his environment. He wants no no recollection of that. Notice, secondly, Daniel confronts the king, verses 22 through 23. Now, Daniel may not have been on his physical A-game. He's 80-some years old. Who knows? But he had the wisdom and the understanding that got better with age, so he goes right to the heart of the forgetful king. Look at verse 22. It's very tragic. Verse 22 puts it right there in front of us. And he says, And you... His son, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. Belshazzar is confronted with one pronoun. You. You have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. You've lifted yourself up against the Lord. You've belittled the presence of God. You have raised, you have praised the creation over the creator. You, you, you. Oh my friend, this is true confrontation. And this is why so often why people who give themselves to the sins of self-glory do not want a man of God to confront them. It goes to the heart of sin. It's you. You set yourself against God. It was a bad decision. You can't go against God. This is a powerful lesson for every one of us sitting in here this morning. Our godless living must be confronted. Must be dealt with. Our Christless thinking must come to an end. Don't push away God's design counselors. Hear the voice of God. How tragic it is for us to grow up in a church environment and constantly hear the things of God, to be warned, to sing the songs of the gospel, to hear the prayers of God's people, and yet still grow hard in your heart that you refuse to hear the lesson of humility. What is the lesson of humility, my friend? God is great and I am not. That's the lesson that we must hear. And notice the end of verse 23. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. He had worshipped powerless idols instead of the true and living God without whose help he could not even breathe even breath enough to sin against God. Verse 23, you raised your hand against God, the one who holds your very breath, the God who gives you life. What a worldview Daniel has. It is God who gives breath, and it is God who gives life. Our worship would be much, much different if we actually believed just this, wouldn't it? I mean, the coldness of our hearts reveals that we really don't fear God, do we? And the message that Jonathan Edwards preached centers in the hands of the angry God. He said that there were people in the audience, and I'd never heard his voice, but they say that it was very drone kind of minded. It was very just like uh, all on one level. And he would read that, but the people began to sit and their knees began to shake 
And the pews would begin to rock because of their own hearts as they listened to the preaching, sinners in the hands of an angry God. We have gotten away from that kind of understanding of God, haven't we? We don't revere God. We don't fear God. And then we come to Belshazzar's demise. Verse 24. And here we learn that Belshazzar is really the dead king. The thing that Nebuchadnezzar had to learn is that even the king of Babylon cannot live in a godless fashion without accountability. It's something that we all must believe as well. You cannot live out your life as if God doesn't exist without accountability. There's sowing and there's reaping. The indication of his pride was that he had used these goblets or these vessels inappropriately. And it's very interesting how easily we can justify things, right? I mean, what's the big deal? Surely golden vessels are not that significant, are they? They're just things. What's the big deal? Surely these, these, these vessels are in and of themselves are really, they're really not the issue. It was what they represented. And God has said certain things are sacred and they're not to be tampered with. Listen carefully. Marriage is sacred. It's not to be tampered with. Truth is sacred. It's not to be tampered with. Human life is sacred. It's not to be tampered with. And having tampered with it all and taken it all for your own self-glory, hear then the words, O King, your final moments on your throne are now over. The words given here on one level could be interpreted as money. Mine is a measuring unit of precious metals. Shekel is another unit of precious metals. And Perez means a half. So, so two minas a shekel and a half shekel. And it's a way of saying, Belshazzar, you're loose change. You're really not worth much. But there's another way that's interpreted the way Daniel says here. He says, you're numbered. You've been weighed. You've been assessed. And the word Perez here has a double meaning. It means to be divided, or it also sounds like Persians. It's those who will come and take the kingdom. You are found wanting. And there's others who will take that kingdom from you. The scales of God's balance are tipped against you. You're a dead man, Belshazzar. Your proud empire is divided and conquered. And God's patience ran out with Belshazzar. Paul writes this in Romans 2, verses 4 and 5. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself in the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Mr. Big Shot, you're a lightweight. It was a day of reckoning for Belshazzar. And Daniel ends this entire text with two verses that speak of God's kingdom. Learn of God's kingdom. And what he's saying, what Daniel is saying here, listen to me, this is how life works. I don't care who you are. 
I don't care what position you have in life, this is how life works. It is because we live in God's world. He alone is God. And when will we learn this and bow before him? Daniel finishes this chapter with two powerful messages. One, God rewards and God will judge. It's God's world. God will reward those who are faithful. God will judge those who are not. This is all throughout Scripture. This is not just Daniel speaking. It's all throughout Scripture. And it's interesting that Daniel is re- was rewarded and the king's doom is secured. It's also interesting to note that chapters 2, 3, and 4 all end with some sort of confessions by the kings. But there is none of that at the end of chapter 5. God rewards Daniel. He got what the king promised him, which was worthless and only lasted a few hours. But this is the great lie, that somehow, some way, we can manipulate life in such a way that we will get all the affirmation, all our felt needs met, and we will be successful. But my friend, all of that is only temporal if God's blessing is not included in on it. It lasted for this man only a few hours. But God's judgment continues even to this day. God will judge. There's no blasphemy that misses God's eyes. And on that very night, it was devastating demise. Judgment is coming. And judgment was coming for him, for Belshazzar. It was coming sooner than he thought. Nebuchadnezzar had 12 months to turn from his pride. But here Belshazzar has literally minutes Don't presume on God's grace. History tells us that the Persian army uniquely conquered them that night. And by this time of him speaking right here, they had already been surrounded. And that very night, Belshazzar found himself in hell. Finished. No more. Proverbs 6.15 says, Calamity will come upon him suddenly and in a moment He will be broken beyond healing. You see, we so underestimate God's holiness and God's judgment, don't we? Jesus asks a question in Luke chapter 18, verse 8. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The word faith in God is really the flip side of repentance. It's not will you have enough good deeds, enough righteous works, my friend. No, in the Christian life is, is, is one of continued repentance from sin and trusting Christ's finished work on your behalf. What does the passage of time teach us about our lives? What story is it telling about our addiction to self-glory? What stories are telling about our addiction to idolatry, our own covetousness, our own Christless thinking, your devotion to His kingdom? Every layer of life must be lived in daily trust into God and His obedience to His word. And this, my friend, is why today we stop everything that we're doing and we have a meal together. It's called the Lord's Supper. It's called the Lord's Supper because everything about our existence, our breath, our life, our salvation is about the work of Christ on our behalf. 
And this faith in Christ is not merely for our justification, it is for our lives every day. We breathe because of him, we have our being because of him. So stop for just a minute this morning and see your Christlessness. See how you go through the motions of belief, but your life is marked with a Christlessness and unbelief and a faithlessness. Confess it. Forsake it. And then breathe. Breathe knowing that your breath came by God through His grace to you. We get to humble ourselves this morning. The Lord's Supper is designed to elicit and to stimulate our hearts a remembrance of the perfections of the person, the work of Jesus. He says, do this in remembrance of me. But this remembrance is commanded. Participation at the Lord's table is not an option for the true child of God. Prolonged absence from it is spiritually unhealthy. But it's a time for every one of us to pause and to humble ourselves and hear the good news of Christ's salvation once again. It speaks to us the promise of genuine forgiveness. That the just judgment on our sin has been paid. All of it. The shame and the guilt of our sin is released. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. And now we're able to fear Him justly and rightly because of the work of Christ in us. It tells us that we are in the Beloved, in the eternal presence of the Father now. Now please understand, if you're visiting today, we practice an open communion, which simply means this. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and He alone is your righteousness and your salvation, then you are welcome to participate with this ordinance. If, however, you have never turned from your own sin and placed your faith in Christ alone, then I beg you to simply observe. Watch what's going on. Scripture talks about people who take this in an unworthy manner. If Christ's righteousness has not transformed your dead heart to a living heart, no matter how sincere you are or how good you think yourself to be, you are not covered by Christ's perfect work for you. And this remembrance entails use of tangible elements, bread and the cup. It isn't enough simply to say, remember, These elements of bread and wine are given to stir our minds, our hearts, our emotions, and our senses. The physical action of eating and drinking is designed to remind us that we are spiritually anemic. We need to ingest and depend upon Jesus and the saving benefits of his life, death, and resurrection. Just as food and drink are essential to sustain physical life, so also the blessings and benefits of Christ's work on our behalf comes to us through the body and the blood of Christ, and they're paramount to our spiritual nourishing. 